toss endless online searching to the curb. Let us edit out the noise and bring you medicine without misinformation. Welcome to the MedEdit Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Jessica Gray. And me, Dr. Carrie Sorrell. Together, we will provide real, evidence-based medical information that will empower your health decisions, answer your questions, even the cringeworthy ones, and help you navigate the overload of information related to health and wellness. Let's sprinkle a little laughter and a whole lot of knowledge into your day. We are talking birth control today. Are you ready, Carrie? I am ready. We're talking the real deal too. All the facts, no fiction. We're tackling those birth control myths because man, there are a lot of myths out there. Today, our wonderful guest host, Dr. Erica Radford talks types of birth control and their effectiveness. We are talking not just about pills either. We are talking injections, implants, IUDs, patches, creams, all the things that you want to know about. We want you to be prepared to ask your doctor all the right questions so you can find the right fit. And after that, we are talking about the dreaded pap smear. Yep. That wonderful visit to our doctor where you all know we hide our panties in the corner under our pants like they have a mission to find them out. (laughs) Um, What is it for? How do we prepare for it? What should you expect? How often do you actually have to have one? The guidelines on this have changed over the years, and we have good news. Listen up as we get you prepared for the path with the Med Edit Podcast. So we are here today talking about one of my favorite topics, birth control, with a lovely Dr. Erica Radford. Dr. Radford is the Assistant Medical Director for Student Health at Texas Tech University. So when we say she is a birth control expert, we mean it. Those students, she talks about this all day, every day. Welcome to the Med Edit Podcast, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Dr. Radford, Erica and I went through residency together all those years ago. I was her chief resident. We spent countless night shifts together in the hospital, managing very sick patients, even delivering babies. Now we can say we have done something even more fun by doing this podcast episode. We really are so excited to have you here. Thank you. So Erica, there's a lot of birth control options out there. And we've all, you know, heard a few stories about negative side effects Can we take a few moments and figure out some fact versus fiction, please? Let's start with myth number one. Birth control is going to make me gain weight. Yeah, so this is probably the number one concern I get in clinic. If I start this medication, will I get weight, gain weight? So the facts, few studies actually look at weight gain as the outcome when comparing hormonal birth control, either to each other or to placebo. There's just not a lot of data out there. What we do know, um, at least in one study, for oral contraceptive pills or OCPs, or as we call it, the pill, Pill. (laughs) there's about a 1.3 pound weight increase over 12 months for U.S. women. And that weight tends to increase with age. They did a Cochrane database analysis evaluating over 40 trials and found that there is insufficient evidence to determine the effect of OCPs on weight gain. So when they combine the data, looked at what is actually out there, what's available for us to compare, there's not anything, not a lot of good data to Mm -hmm. suggest that birth control pills themselves are going to have an effect on weight gain. Um, Depo-Provera, however, actually does have evidence about three to four women will gain an average of 1.4 pounds in the first year. Okay. And that's the shot. Yes. The shot. Okay. And just for our listeners who aren't as familiar with our medical literature, a Cochrane review is kind of our highest level evidence-based, um, say 
accumulation of studies that we can look at. So that's interesting that they have looked at this and haven't really been able to find sufficient evidence, I guess, about weight gain with OCPs. So basically, when they don't find sufficient evidence, it's not there. Right. Right. (laughs) So what Dr. Raffer is saying is that actual scientific studies, like the ones that are controlled, not just people's random stories on social media, have proven that basically no one can find a link between birth control pills and weight gain. And the Depo-Provera shot might have weight gain, but it's only 1.4 pounds and not this 20, 30 pounds people report. I mean, I remember being in medical school and I went, I always had the really painful periods with endometriosis Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I went and got the Depo-Provera shot. And I remember the nurse asking me after maybe my first, you know, three months or maybe the second three months on it. She's like, have you gained any weight on it? Because they had someone come in saying, I've gained 35 pounds from it. It's the shot. I'm so mad. And I was like, no, I actually lost weight because I was just kind of thinking about it too. You know, you're right. like, okay, well, just make sure you don't do anything too crazy or change. But I know that's something Dr. Radford hears about all day long in clinic that, oh my gosh, this birth control pills, they made me gain weight. Yeah. And on that topic, you know, could there be some other things that are going on around the same time that you start birth control pills that can be um, the cause of that weight gain? Yes. And so I try to remind my college students about this, like college is a huge transitional period in your life, right? So you were kids, now you're an adult, you're going to have to make your own decisions, buy your own groceries, wake up, you know, at a reasonable hour, go to bed at a reasonable hour, your circadian rhythm is all thrown off. And then this is the time we're also starting birth control. So correlation is not causation, right? We often start birth control at important stages in women's lives, like around this time. Maybe we started as a teenager to help with really painful periods. We do see that sometimes even 13, 14, 15-year-olds will need to start on birth control pills that can help to reduce the pain in periods and the flow as well. Around this time, this is the same This is the same time your body is going through the normal developmental changes. Most likely, you won't be the same weight as an adult you were when birth control was started at 16. Or what about in college? Like I was referring to when you get all that new freedom living alone, making all all your own decisions. Not to mention the dining halls um, usually aren't the best well-rounded, you know, choices. They may have good, healthy choices there. Um... But when you're faced with like pizza, macaroni, spaghetti, or a salad, you know, and you know which one you want to eat more, right? Drinking alcohol at tailgates too. Big dietary changes have more of an effect on weight than birth control does. Another big part of someone's life, what about after having a baby? Losing baby weight has less to do with birth control than that it does with what level of physical activity you do have, what your diet looks like, whether you're breastfeeding or not, those types of things have more of an effect than the birth control pills itself. That's really interesting because I haven't really thought about that. that A lot of times you start these interventions that are very stressful parts of your life, right? right? Mm -hmm. Adolescence is always stressful. I mean, that's just a stressful growing pain time. But then also going to college, maybe you get married. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe like you said, after having a baby, those are high stress periods to begin with, much less you're adding on a, a medication. So I could see how the confusion can exist. Absolutely. And then it's, it's you know, we want to blame something, right? I mean, I don't, you know, yeah, I like to blame my weight gain I, on anything possible. We, we, right. And so the pill has just had that, you know, notion to it for so many years and people talk about it in that way. It's really easy to blame the pill when honestly, one pound, come on guys, one pound, you yeah. can fluctuate that in a, a week, a day. Yeah. I mean, one pound. as a gastroenterologist, that could be one large bowel movement. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Carrie's always bringing it back to the bums. <laughs> Love it. 
Absolutely. Um, so, you know, let's talk about another myth. Okay. Let's talk about the concern, um, Erica, that birth control increases your risk of cancer. I've heard this one a lot, especially from people's maybe moms or grandmothers, maybe that are concerned about it. They've, you know, they're at those ages where they're seeing women, maybe their friends develop breast cancer, ovarian cancer, things like that. And they say, gosh, again, you want to blame it on something, right. And you want to blame it on things that do cause that, but are birth control pills, the source of these cancers. So this is a a very valid concern. You're giving somebody exogenous hormones. So this actually has a lot of data um, around it versus the first myth we discussed. But studies are still ongoing, especially with oral contraceptive pills or the pill. There is actually no definitive evidence yet that shows that oral contraceptive pills increase or decrease the risk of breast cancer. Studies are ongoing. There's many, many, many types of breast cancer. There's hormonal receptor breast cancer. Um, there's lots of different types. So lots of studies ongoing, this would be an individual discussion you should have with your doctor. If breast cancer runs in your family, um, what other alternatives, you know, if this is a concern for you, you would be willing to look at, but we do know that oral contraceptive pills decrease the risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer. So that is well established in the literature. Decrease. And a decrease. So it decreases. Yes, it decreases. Right. <laughs> and, and a big way it does that is um, it stops ovulation. So if you're not ovulating, you have a, a decreased risk of ovarian cancer. If you have that endometrial lining stabilized by the birth control pill, you decrease the risk of endometrial cancer as well. This one is interesting. Not a lot of people know about they are also in oral contraceptive pills are associated with the 15 to 20% decrease in risk of colon cancer. Mary, those I are know. your people. I find that super interesting. I love that. That's like, that's a very interesting one. The decreases ones I always find are fascinating because mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of things that decrease cancer, right? Like an actual pill or something that we would do day to day. We keep telling you to take away things, right? We're saying, okay, less, you know, no smoking, less alcohol, less red meat. But this we're saying, hey, here's a birth control pill that right. maybe can help you with your horrible, painful periods or not getting pregnant when you don't aren't ready for that. And guess right. what? It also maybe decreases these specific cancers if those run in your family yeah. as well. And like Erica mentioned, I think anytime you stabilize those fluctuating levels, you're right. going to get less cell turnover. And we all know that when cells are turning over is when a lot of cancers happen. Right. So I think it kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. So another myth busted. In fact, it appears that there's evidence that birth control can actually decrease the risk of some cancers. So let's go on to another one, hot topic. I have personally had people bring this up to me before because as a patient with infertility, we've talked about that. That's been a big thing, a big part of my life for the last 10, 13 years or so. But they say, you know, I think it's part of birth control. You've been on birth control pills for painful periods for so long. Maybe it's the pill. That's what caused infertility. Erica, can you tell us a little bit more about this one since it's very near and dear to my heart? Yeah, so this is probably the number two concern I get for my college age population. They certainly don't want fertility now, but they think about that down the line, and it is a valid concern. The literature shows so far that no hormonal uh, birth control or contraception shows any decrease in fertility. However, the speed of return to fertility does depend on the type of birth control that is being used. The NIH published a study that 80% of oral contraceptive pill users who stopped conceived within a year. So fertility, you're saying oh, of people with on birth control pills 
were able to we're we're could who trying to get pregnant obviously we're able to get pregnant within 12 months right so that's that's a pretty high number 80 percent. Right. that's pretty high yeah and with iud's fertility returns promptly faster than an oral contraceptive pill love that for Nexplanon, most women, um, once you get that Nexplanon out, they will resume their normal cycles within about a month. And Depo-Provera, this is the one that takes the longest. Return to fertility can take as long as 6 to 18 months, but it is still possible after a missed shot. So make sure you are getting yours on time if that is something you do not want. Right. And a lot of that probably also depends on the reason you were on the birth control in the first place, right? Because if right. you were somebody who was on it, because of endometriosis type symptoms, you may have fertility issues at baseline. Of course. Yeah. Right. I got off of a pill and it took, I mean, it took us many, many, many years. It just seems right. like that wasn't the issue. Awesome. Yes. PCOS is another reason yes. that okay. you would also be on oral contraceptive pills or a contrac- or hormonal oral con- hormonal contraception. And that can certainly affect return to fertility as well. I mean, yes, obviously that has much more effect than the birth control pill ever did is the underlying reason we started the pill. I mean, absolutely. So basically what we're hearing is no birth control method makes you infertile or decreases your chance of getting pregnant in the long term, which is great news. And talking about your future plans for pregnancy can help you pick which birth control option would be the best fit. So on that topic, you know, trying to find what is the best fit for you. Um, Erica, just tell me more about birth control types. Let's go down the list and we'll kind of go back and forth and just kind of get some overviews of what's out there, what's what are being used right now. Um, let's start with which type is the most effective, but also not permanent. So let's say you, you know, know that you're going through, I'm gonna use some of my friends from med school and as examples. I've got some good friends who uh, one's an OB-GYN. And so she's a great example. She's like, hey, I want to go through med school. I want to go through residency and not get pregnant. So I need something that's going to last long term, be very effective because I do not have time to get pregnant during residency. But also I don't, you know, when I want to get it done, I want to, I want to get it out. I'll, then it's time to have kids. What What's a good option? What's the most effective for her? Yeah. So that's actually how I approach the conversations with my patients. The first thing I ask them, is do you want something long-term or do you want something short-term? When do you see yourself trying to have children? If that's something you ever even want, you don't have to have kids ever if you don't want to. Um, So tell me kind of what your future plans are. What are you planning to do with your life? Make it very patient-centered. And so as far as the long-term birth control options, this is my favorite thing to say about Nexplanon. It can be hard to sell Nexplanon to some people. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but Nexplanon is the most effective form of birth control next to abstinence. And that includes getting your tubes tied. You are more likely to have a baby getting your tubes tied than you are with an Nexplanon in your arm. I when I say that, they're like, put it, put it in my arm today. I don't want a baby. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's great effective at preventing wow. pregnancy and a hundred percent reversible. And it just goes, it's the little implant that goes in your arm. But on that note, Erica, I definitely have to throw that in there. There is so much misinformation on the internet. My patients will come in after watching TikTok videos of people, usually in other countries that are having like horrific, like next one on implants, right. like reactions and they're getting sutures and they're having like this bleeding and all this crazy things happening. But it's all that's Dr. Adford, like, tell us, like, is that any of that real when you put one in or take one out? Do we need sutures and all this crazy stuff? No, it's absolutely, there's absolutely misinformation out there for sure. And whenever I do these consultations, we take a moment to talk about like, what are your fears? What have you heard about it? Um, 
what are you scared of? Is it the shot of lidocaine? Is it actually putting something foreign in your arm? We kind of talk about piercings, like you have piercings, it's kind of similar, right? It's a foreign body. Um, we talk about lidocaine. You've had dental work done before. You've had lidocaine shots in your mouth, you know, like you've had a cavity or something like that. Um, it's kind of the same thing. We do a little shot of lidocaine in your arm and we put that in. Um, it's a five minute procedure. I show them what an exponon looks like. It's like this little plastic looking thing. It's not a scary barbed thing they may have seen on these TikToks. And removal is very easy. We don't even use a suture to remove it. We just use a little steri strip and pressure bandage and that's all you need. That can be very reassuring to them. It's very interesting that some of the fear is more about the device itself than some of the long-term um, effects of it. So um, definitely taking time to assuage those fears is is a good thing. So tell us about the IUD. That's another one that's obviously pretty popular, um, especially, you know, I know a lot of moms have had them, especially after having kids and stuff. So tell us kind of the pros, cons, risks, things that you maybe misconceptions people hear about IUDs. Yeah. So the biggest misconception about IUDs, especially in my patient population, they think they don't even qualify for them. They're like, well, I haven't, you never even had a baby. So that's not something I can have. That is outdated advice. And it goes back a long time to 1988 when Paragard, which is the copper IUD, when that was introduced in the United States, the product label actually did indicate that the device was for women who have had at least one child. In 2005, the FDA removed these restrictions and that expanded the use of Paragard in women who have never had children. And then a similar situation when Mirena was released. Mirena is a hormonal IUD that is one of the most common IUDs. Why was that concern there in the first place? Well, there was a concern that the placement might be too difficult. After a woman has had a child, the cervix may be a little bit wider, a little bit more dilated at baseline, it might be easier to, to insert that device. That being said, they have found, you know, with studies after that, that there's no difference as far as the ability to place these devices, whether women have had children or not. Of course, you know, you've also had women who've had C-sections that are able to get IUDs and they've had babies. So by the time that these restrictions were lifted, the damage was already done. Unfortunately, the attitudes and health professionals even had been already cemented. There was a 2012 study an obstetric and gynecology journal that showed that no less than 30% of medical professionals, including doctors, held these outdated beliefs. So really unfortunate. So the ACOG, um, which is a body that, that governs the obstetrics and gynecology doctors, they issued a committee opinion. Medical professionals should encourage consideration of implants and IUDs for all appropriate candidates including nilliparous women, which is women who've never had children, and adolescents. Studies have shown that perceived pain, however, is more severe in women who have never given birth. So they did study that and look at that as an outcome. I do talk about this with my patients. Sometimes my patients have never even had a pelvic exam before when they're coming in for an IUD. So one thing I like to do at the consultation visit is their first pelvic exam. Right. It helps me kind of determine their anatomy. Would they be a good candidate for it? Um, is their cervix in a good position? Not only that, it kind of gets them through that very nervous part of 
that part of the procedure and they can kind of experience that. No, that wasn't so bad. And then when I actually go to place the IUD after I've ordered it, run it through insurance, all that, they come back. It's a little bit easier for them. Also, you can ask your doctor for pre-medication. Xanax is helpful in these situations. That is a, a medication for anxiety. Um, we use a slow dose. You don't have to have your oxygen monitored or anything like that. You will need a ride home. Um, you can't, you know, obviously drink alcohol or take any other sedating medications with it. But um, that is an option that a lot of doctors, you can have that conversation with your doctor. Um, and that definitely helps in my experience inserting IUDs, especially in, in women who've never had a baby before. Okay. So that gives a lot of good background there, especially yeah. if, you know, like you said, you talk, you have these conversations where you're trying to figure out what your long-term plans on are. So Marina, if, you know, if anybody hasn't heard the big bulletin yet, you know, somebody who might have a Marina right now is thinking, oh, maybe it's time to get it out. It actually got expanded so that you can keep it in for eight years yeah. now, which is awesome. Love that. Potentially next one on might be having theirs change in the future as well uh, to be a little bit longer too. That hasn't happened yet. So still get it out at three years if that's, you've got one in, but potentially, you know, they're looking at these longer term studies, seeing that you can leave some of these in for longer. Um, you know, I do have patients that are coming in lately talking a lot about asking for non-hormonal options. I think maybe they've heard a lot of those myths and they're scared or they're just like, okay, well, what if I don't want to put more hormones in my body, I want to go a natural route. What are my options? And so we kind of brought these up to, you know, the Paragard Copper IUD. Um, you know, obviously there's condoms, there's natural family planning, of course, the withdrawal methods, spermicides, you know, just real briefly, tell us the effectiveness overall of some of these things. Like how, how much can we rely on some of these non-hormonal options? Yeah. So a little bit about Paragard Copper IUD. I do get that concern a lot about not having hormones. Sometimes patients have tried several options already. Like they've tried the pill, they've tried the shot. They're like, I really want something that's effective, but doesn't give me hormones. Paragard Copper IUD is an option. It's not as popular with doctors as it used to be. Um, there are significant side effects with it, especially um, increased menstrual bleeding, cramping, that kind of a thing versus the Mirena, which um, can actually help with those things. Um, actually, it's FDA approved for heavy menstrual bleeding. And I just tried to talk to them. What are your concerns with the hormones? What all happened with the IUDs? the hormonal IUDs have a very localized effect on the uterus. And so um, about 50% of women don't even stop ovulating with an IUD. And huh. so there's not a lot that gets released into the bloodstream. And so if their concern is, I don't want hormones in my blood affecting my brain and everything else, a hormonal IUD actually is a great option. Uh, so we talk about that. They can try that, see how it works. They see how it does for them. Um, some of the other options... Uh, I do have patients that will only use condoms. And I do say to everyone, also use condoms because of STI prevention. Um, those aren't as effective. There are various studies that show perfect versus typical use versus average use. Like, what does all that mean? Right. All it means to say is it's not as effective as taking something hormonally in order to stop ovulation or or change the environment of the uterus to prevent implantation or pregnancy. But they are options. And sometimes people use them as a backup method of birth control. Awesome. So, you know, the other one that we want to briefly say is like the natural family planning. Like, what is that? Because a lot of people are doing it. They just don't know that that's what it's kind of called. So, you know, where they track their cycle and they see on the little apps that you can buy 
or not even buy, you just download for free on your phone that say this is when you're supposed to ovulate each month. On that one, how effective do you think that is? It's another situation about effectiveness with perfect typical use, that kind of a thing. Also, not everybody has a 28-day cycle. Um, So sometimes the apps aren't always accurate. And um, in my college student population, if that's what they want to do, I will always be supportive. But I do want to educate, you know, that these do have a higher failure rate than than taking a medication type of birth control, um, mainly because we don't know our cycle links. Um, there's a lot of things that go on in college in that time of your life that can throw off your cycle too, like can cause weight gain, weight loss, lack of sleep, getting sick. Everybody's sick all the time. These things can throw it off. And before you know it, you're like, when was my last period? I don't even remember. Or why did I skip a period last month? That kind of a thing that can cause undue stress, especially for a college student. To me, I don't think that's worth it. But if that's something that that our college student wants to go through and or that's a method that they choose, then I talk about the best ways to do that. There are other people, though, that prefer to use natural fam- family planning and they are, you know, if I get pregnant, that would be fine, but I'm going to try not to get pregnant. And this is what I'm going to do by tracking my cycles. So um, there's various ways and and the best we can do as, as their doctors is to educate what will be the best way for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that um, that's a good point. I actually tried to use one of those when I was trying to get pregnant. And I can tell you mm-hmm. there's a lot of confusion. And I think I probably would have had just a good of luck just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Radford. I think we have officially busted some major myths about birth control that our listeners have been asking about. Dr. Radford, don't you go anywhere because up next, we're talking about another important women's health topic, the dreaded pap smear. We know you ha- will have thoughts about this as well. Paging Dr. Sorrell. Hi, this is Dr. Carrie Sorrell, and I'm so happy that you're here. If there's something you'd like us to cover in an episode, please reach out to me or Dr. Jessica using the contact link in today's show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, we covered birth control in depth, but how could we not mention the pap smear when talking about women's health? Carrie, as a doctor and a patient and a woman, do you also hide your undies underneath your pants when your your doctor comes in to do that pelvic exam? Absolutely. I I make sure that I've got a really good pair when I go. And then I absolutely hide them underneath my pants. Like they're going to come looking for them for some reason. I think it's just like a woman thing. We all do this. No one told us to do that, but we all do this. No. So we hide our panties and we also shave our legs. I don't know why, but I just have to have my legs shaved. Yeah, I'm I'm leaving the house and my husband's probably like, where are you going that you're so concerned yeah. about your shaved legs and the type of underwear that you're wearing? <laughs> Very dressed. I know, right? We're going on our special date. Special date. <laughs> That's right. I like that term, special date. Special date. Well, your first pap, your special date, is a rite of passage accompanied by obviously very mixed emotions. We're here today to break it down. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why. So let's start with the what. Let's start with the difference between a pap smear and a pelvic exam. These are not the same thing. Let's say it in the louder for the people in the back, a pap smear and a pelvic exam are not the same thing. So often I ask patients when their last pap smear was, and they tell me, oh, they did one when I was in the ER that one time. So no, I have never met an ER doctor that routinely does pap smears. Like they that's just not a thing. They do pelvic exams when necessary, but not pap smears. A pap smear is the actual test that brushes the cervix. Cervix, we talked about that a lot today, which is the opening to the uterus to collect cells and look for cervical cancer specifically. A pelvic exam is when we get you naked 
We put you up in those lovely stirrups. We use a speculum to look inside the vagina. A pelvic exam is used to evaluate the pelvic region, including the vagina, cervix, uterus, ovaries. This is done for many reasons other than a pap. You need it to do it to get a pap, but we do it for things like pain, um, vaginal discharge, bleeding, just to name a few reasons. Unless the provider is using that special brush we talked about to collect the cells from the cervix to look at it for cervical cancer, then you just got a pelvic exam. And a pap does not look for STDs like chlamydia and gonorrhea. So if you want those things tested, you have to do an additional swab. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, why do we do pap smears? What is the point? Are we torturing women for fun? Or <laughs> Jessica, tell me, what is the reason for a pap smear? So the reason for the pap smear is super important. We we do not want to torture anybody no. for any reason. And they've actually done lots of studies showing that the reason we are torturing you is for a good reason. So a pap helps us look for subtle changes in the cervical cells, that cervix, again, the opening to the uterus, that happen with cervical cancer. So cervical cancer was one of the most common causes of cancer death for American women. Mm. You know, it's one of those things you don't think about things that used to be common that are not anymore. Right. And why? It dropped significantly with the increased use of the pap smear. Um, you know, we actually started talking about these things more and we had the technology to do this. Cervical cancer right now is the most frequently diagnosed in women between the ages of 35 and 44, with the average age at diagnosis being 50. So yes, it's a little older when you get diagnosed, but the reason you start screening is for those subtle changes that start happening younger. Each year in the United States, there's about 11,500 new cases and more terrifying. There's 4,000 women that die of cervical cancer every year in the United States. And more than one half of those people who develop cervical cancer hadn't had maybe a pap at all ever. About half of them never had one. Another 10% just didn't have it in the last five years. Hmm. So they had forgotten about it or said, oh, I've, they've always been normal. I don't need any more. And so that's not the case. Right. And, you know, I know that we've talked about that this data and these recommendations have changed a lot, even from when we were younger and started getting pap smears. So how, based on currently what the guidelines and what the data shows, how often do we need to be getting a pap smear? So these are big changes. So whether you are carrying my age and Dr. Radford's age here, we're all around the same age, or if you're younger or even you're, if you're older, you need to listen up on this one because it has changed. It's not it's not the same as it was previously. Not the same as when your mom had them or your grandma had them. So um, we, when we started them, you did it at 18 or when you became first sexually active, that's when you got your first pat. Right. Now, the rule that's been effective for over 10 years, so this is not a brand new thing, is that you start paps at 21 years old despite sexual history. And then the other change is that we don't do them yearly anymore. Hallelujah. Yes. The recommendations if you get your pap smears are normal. Again, they have to have a normal result. Then you get one every three years. That's amazing news. I mean, who really wants to do that special date yearly anyways? Absolutely. Dr. Radford, do your patients seem to be excited about that change as well? <laughs> yes, they they are. And they also have that, even though they're young to begin with, they have the idea that it has to be yearly. That may be some information coming from mom or grandma or aunt. But I see them a lot at the age of 18 and they're like, I'm here for my pap. I'm like, ah, well, good news for you today. And then when they're there at 21 and and after I finish the pad, I'm like, great news. You'll have to come back in three years if everything looks good today. And they're so happy to hear that. I love it. I love that. It. So it's good night when we give the good news. Right. And so I have even better news. So, okay, like us, once you turn 30, you get some an extra little special test done called the HPV co-testing. So it's two tests. If both of these are normal, then you get to have a PAP every five years. But you have to make sure both tests are being done. You can't just assume. You need to talk to your OBGYN, your family medicine provider, whoever, and say, 
you know, are we doing both testing when we ask you, was your pap normal? And so I try to tell my patients very specifically, you had the co-testing done. That's why it's every five years now with that one. And does that change any regarding the HPV vaccine? So, you know, we could do a whole segment on yeah. HPV vaccine. <laughs> like truly, I like left it out of this one on purpose so right. we can just finish with time okay. today. But yeah, the HPV vaccine does not change okay. your screening guidelines. We still want you to have the HPV vaccine, which you can get in childhood. Right. The rules have changed. You can actually get in as an adult now. There's yeah. a lot better insurance coverage. Um, even if you've had an abnormal pap smear and you've been HPV positive already, you can still get the HPV vaccine and we can cover that later. Yeah, but absolutely. Yes. Okay. Even if you've had your HPV vaccine, you can still do this testing and it gets you every five years right. um, as well. And since there is a lot of varying information out there, again, remember what's most important is just ask your doctor, you know, go over your history keep track of your medical records, which I think this is really big for young people because they don't think about it. When we get older, we do think about this. But, you know, especially those, you know, college age students that maybe have had one before they went to college or they have one when they're at college, like with Erica at their health center, and then they go back home, make sure you have those records with you so that when people ask you and figure out when your next one is, you know. And when in doubt, you can ask your your provider. They can do a pap smear for you. Yes. And then you start fresh from that right. moment. And yeah, sometimes my women will come in like, I don't remember if they did one after I had my baby. We'll say, well, let's just do it right now. We'll yeah. do the, you know, the pap with HPV co-testing. And if it's normal, since you've never had an abnormal pap, you get to do one in five years. Congratulations. I think most importantly, from what some of our listeners want to know as a patient, what are some tips and tricks to make the pap smear as least uncomfortable as possible. Right. So we're not going to say that it's not going to be, uh, you know, we're not gonna say it's gonna be comfortable, right? Right. That's kind of odd. If someone comes in, I always tell my patients, if you come in and you say that you love getting your pap smear, I'm going to make a face. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, coming in, knowing it's something we need to routinely do, just like, you know, getting your blood drawn or something else like that. It doesn't feel great, but it also doesn't have to be something that's horrifically painful. And there's some ways that we can kind of talk about that. Um, if you do have significant pain with any kind of pelvic exam or pap smear, it could be related to some other causes that need to be addressed by your doctor separately. So don't let your doctor blow you off and say, you know, oh, everybody is in horrific pain with a pap smear. That's not true. There's some things that we can do to make you more comfortable. And we'll talk about those real quick. There's some things that the patient can do, but if there's some significant out of proportion pain or something like that going on, then there, we need to look at it and investigate and take that time. But let's start with those basic tips that you can do to make your pap smear as comfortable as possible. You need to know what you're doing and going into the room. So make sure that you understand there will be a chaperone in the room with your provider. So a chaperone is that maybe like the nurse that's standing in the corner handing the, you know, instruments or tools to somebody. There should be somebody else in the yeah, room. And they're so. not there to judge you no. or like find interest in what's going on. So not just need to make all. sure you're not like, why is this person here? You know, yeah. that's, that's not at all the reason. We joke about like shaving your legs before and all that stuff seriously come in the way you normally are like when yeah, don't I, worry about it yeah i used to think that in like before i went to med school and residency that my doctor was thinking about like what i looked like and stuff <laughs> underneath you know down there and then now i'm a person that does it 20 times a day i literally sit there and i'm like I don't, nothing phases me. No. And, and we don't judge. We don't think there's nothing there. So I have women that just apologize, you know, before they come in. So no apologizing, just know there that we, we don't want you to have any embarrassment to tell your doctor ahead of time. If you have anxiety or a history of sexual abuse or trauma, that's really, really important. We can take extra time. We can be extra gentle. We can do some extra things that really help. Um, but make sure your doctor's aware of that before you start the exam. Number three, do not hold your breath. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Look up something called boxed breathing techniques. That can be really helpful as well. Find a spot on the ceiling. I have so many patients that were like, yeah, I was told just to hold my breath and 
bear down. I was like, that makes everything worse. It makes yeah. your uh, muscles tense up. So make sure you're breathing. Feel free to distract yourself. This is kind of a new one. I totally told a patient the other day they could do. Um, if you want to put your headphone in for music, go for it. You want to pull up Netflix on your phone and watch, you know, friends or something like that, go for it. As long as you can hear the instructions that we're giving you by the provider during the exam, you can have a little distraction. By the time you probably even find the song you want to look for, you we're be already done. done. Yeah. Again, last the biggest thing is ask questions before, during, and after. The studies, when they looked at it to try to understand why women were so uncomfortable, what their fears were with pelvic exams, showed that 37% of people were worried about the physical discomfort. 20% didn't want it because of embarrassment. So just understand we are all doing this. Don't be embarrassed about anything. Talk to your doctor. The one that I thought was super interesting was disliking the attitude of their examiner. As doctors and, and providers are doing this, we need to have a good attitude about this. Yeah. So if your doctor is not having a good attitude, I give you permission to go find somebody else for sure. And then experiencing problems during a previous exam. I definitely think that I've had a lot of patients who've come with this. And I've even personally been some places I've had one and I'm like, man, they were a little, right. a little rough there. Right. Um, so it does make you a little more nervous, but tell your provider that that happened to you before and what your concerns were about it so that they can go over that later. We, when we talk and train our residents and med students, some of the things we tell them is that it's so important to explain each step of the exam in advance, provide lots of information about the reproductive organs, like what is happening, maybe warming the instruments, increased gentleness. I mean, there's pretty basic stuff that we teach to try to do this. So mm-hmm. your provider should be doing these things. If they're not, find someone else, honestly. Um, and the biggest thing is if it ever becomes clear that a patient or you um, is just in horrible amounts of pain or anything like that, the provider who's doing the exam needs to stop. There, There's no reason that anything yeah. has to keep going. You can stop. I tell my patients, if they have a lot of anxiety about it, that, hey, you know, we have a safe word if we need to just come up with something that we can say, all right, we do not have to keep going. There's no reason that you have to be tortured to that point with it. Can I add a little bit about someone's first pap smear ever? Absolutely. Yeah. So in my patient population, it's usually, since I see mostly 18 to 22 year olds, it's their very first pap smear ever. So it causes a lot of anxiety having to do it the first time. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Like we've talked already about what it's like, how big the speculum is, how much it's going to hurt. And so what I do, first of all, they're usually coming in because they want birth control. Almost nobody who's 21 calls and says, I'm here for my pap smear. Like I'm here to get a pap smear. They're here for birth control. And that's when we bring up pap smears, right? Um, it's my practice that I don't ever hold anyone hostage and say, well, you're not going to get your birth control unless you get a pap today. No, I don't do that. You can still have it. These are two separate issues. Please come back when you're ready, but let's talk about it first and why it's important. I do show them what a speculum looks like. We can even use the smallest like pediatric type speculums. And I do explain that it's it's important in the sense that for a lot of people, this is the first time that a doctor has ever examined you there since you yeah. were a baby. Like right. when you think about your checkups every year, um, they're not usually looking at genitals, right? Um, and so when you were a baby, they did just make sure everything on the outside looked okay. And then that's it for about 20 years. And so... Um, that's another reason why, you know, a pap smear is important just to kind of look at all the anatomy and everything. And, and, um, I also tell my patients too, that you're in control. That's a big thing. Like Dr. Gray mentioned, um, is, is the person doing it is the discomfort they feel they are in control the whole time. If they ever need me to stop, I will stop. And so I keep reiterating that to the patient. We will, we will do this at your own pace. We can always do this later. So please just let me know what you're comfortable with. 
I love that. I think that's like the biggest highlight of the whole thing. Have a conversation. Absolutely. And you're right for a lot of adults it's maybe their first encounter with healthcare professionals since they were a child except for maybe like a yearly flu shot or Mm -hmm. when you know when they get sick okay well pap smear oh pap smear how we loathe they (laughs) i hope you our listener now knows why we do them and are better prepared for your cervical cancer screening awesome doctors like jessica and erica are ready and happy to see you for one today After all that, I think everyone is ready to talk to their doctor about their birth control option that best fits them, what they need for their pap smear, and just ready to take on that dreaded pap. Thank you again so much, Dr. Radford, for joining us on the show. Please come back anytime. We love hearing from you. To our listeners, come follow us to learn facts about your health. Like this episode, subscribe, turn on notifications for new episodes, tell your friends, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the MedEdit Podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about this episode and to learn how you can reach Dr. Carrie Sorrell and Dr. Jessica Gray, please visit today's show notes. And don't forget, click that follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information and content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you need medical advice or help, contact your personal physician. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Dr. Jessica Gray and Dr. Carrie Sorrell. This podcast should not be considered as an alternative for medical advice, diagnosis, or confirmation of an illness or disease. Please seek assistance from your personal health practitioner.